Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to The Legal Helm. In this episode, BIM talks with Martin Bray, Vice President of Enterprise Systems and Corporate IT for UserZoom, an up-and-coming experience insight management company. They talk about the impact UX has had on overall productivity and efficiency, particularly when working remotely. It's a lively conversation that covers a lot of ground and challenges listeners to think about UX and their communication systems a little differently. And now, on to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Helm podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be welcoming Marty Bray, VP of Enterprise Systems and Corporate IT at UserZoom, a company that provides software and services to help digital teams understand, manage, and measure UX to create amazing products that customers really, really love. They work with the likes of Google, Sky, as well as other leading brands out there. So for those of you that don't know, Marty has been my boss, a colleague, most importantly, a dear friend over the years. So I'm really excited to have you on board. So when we started talking about getting you onto the podcast, Marty, I reminded myself of your career, right? And I went to your LinkedIn profile and had a look at what you've been involved in. And some of the early career stuff, you've been a consultant, you've been an auditor, you've run like large global professional services teams. So really interesting journey in terms of how you've got to where you are today. And I thought maybe a good starting point would be for me to ask you just to kind of give us a synopsis of how you got to where you are today at UserZoom and especially how you ended up choosing the career path that you did. Oh, th thanks, Bim. First of all, as I said to you when you first extended the invite, I'm flattered to be on, and I think the podcast series is awesome. So listen up, folks, to other episodes. There's some very eminent people on. In terms of my career, I think if you get a liberal arts degree for your university education, you end up going into generalist kind of roles and learning a lot as you go through your career. I feel like maybe in hindsight, there's more logic to the career path than there was foresight to it, but was fortunate to start working as a consultant back in the days when you didn't have to have a computer science degree to get into systems consulting. The added bonus with working with computers was you didn't just decode the text and understand the meaning, you could actually make the machine do things. And I found that very intriguing. So, you know, kind of transitioned from writing and testing the code modules that were assigned to me to managing a small team of people that were doing that, designing the modules that other people would write, managing larger projects, and then managing businesses of projects. My current role is actually a bit of an aberration. I'm kind of the internal IT guy rather than the services person that's out there working with end customers. But that's actually because UserZoom wanted to get a consultant in to basically be an internal consultant for the company so that we can achieve scale and uh, work smarter instead of harder. Fantastic. Thank you for that. That's really insightful in terms of your journey and very interesting. So you kind of touched on the fact that you've been involved in this professional service delivery model and in fact started out as a consultant. So I'm guessing that that gave you a good grounding in terms of understanding some of the challenges of general consulting models and delivering them at scale. Obviously, our interaction started when we met at Thomson Reuters, when you were heading up some of the global services efforts there, rolling out some of the big best of breed systems to large law firms across the world. So I'm interested to kind of dig into that a little bit and just kind of learn from you in terms of what's your starting point? Like, What do you do when you go in day one and how do you start to think about 
what your approach is going to be, what your strategy is going to be to be able to put the right things in place. What kind of things um, do you do on day one to kind of help you achieve that? Yeah, a great, great question. I have moved around a bit in my career, and that brings a lot of different challenges. Every time you start a new role, there's that very scary initial period of like, oh God, what have I gotten myself into? So you come in with a bit of a kit bag, but I think the first thing you want to do is talk and listen to people that have been part of the organization for a while to understand where the organization's at and how it got there, right? There's usually a, a reason why things have ended up in the shape that you find them. And so I guess that's my first suggestion is be, be humble and listen more at first than, than to preach or talk to kind of get a good calibration of where the organization's at. Depending on how senior the level is that you get brought in, the honeymoon period is not usually left for too long before people start expecting you to make some sort of change and improve things. So, you know, use that golden period to learn as much as you can because the next set of things are probably going to be some of the most consequential things that you're going to do. I, I think it's also a matter of reading the people. So you have to come into the organization, especially if you're coming in from outside, and get a quick read on who's a friend, who's potentially a foe, and who's in between, you know, who's persuadable to, to come on board for a new or different way of, of looking at things. You know, I guess apply the, the usual sort of early adopter model of figuring out who's going to enthusiastically join you in this new crusade. You know, do what you can to get those allies to help you, you know, build strength and maybe adjust your message behind some of the kit bag of stuff you want to bring in to sort of change or start to mold where the organization's going. I'm guessing that part of it, like kind of moving on to like that starting point to then really getting into the weeds is when you, you kind of start to uncover some of the challenges, right? Just that whole navigation of issues that can come up. So I, I know that, that one of the things that I, I really do, that stands out, that really stands out with my experience of working for you when we were at Thomson Reuters was you were always willing to go and sit next to a customer during key moments of a project, right? To go and understand the dynamics and go and make sure that they had a, a very good experience. And mm. that customer service element of your approach really kind of stood out to me. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about why you take that approach, what you see in terms of the benefits of doing that. Well, thanks for pointing that out, Bim. You know, I think it's something that I picked up from working for Arthur Anderson and for Booz Allen, where partners weren't necessarily out at the client every day, but they were out there frequently. And it was very much a relationship. And I, I used to joke with people that I traveled for two reasons. One is to help get the next project sold or the next set of projects sold. And the other reason was dealing with all the problems that came up on the projects that were already sold. It was always easier to engage during the project cycle when things got challenging, if you already had developed a relationship with people during the sales cycle. And even if you hadn't, the problems were going to go a lot better if you had some kind of personal connection with the people and they knew that you cared, that they could literally see how you were thinking through the issues, how you were trying to work your organization to get their needs met, and that you were going to do whatever you could to, to try and get that solved. So, I mean, to be honest, personally, I just found that to be the most fun part of the job is actually being out there, even though sometimes it was, it was challenging. But I think nothing replaces that human connection, especially if you're selling and, and delivering services. So apart from not 
gathering a mass load of air miles, which you're obviously missed out on during the COVID period. What, what would you say are some of the things you miss about being on the road? Like, I, I know that one of the things that I miss is that when I would be on site and I would be sitting next to somebody who's having some challenges, you could learn a lot just by the way that they interacted with software, right? And I'm kind of keen, keen to learn, like, based on like your experience over the last couple of years with, with COVID, what's changed from that perspective in terms of you being able to still deliver that same level of customer service? Like, are there any tips or tricks or things that you're doing differently? I agree. It's, it's totally different when you can look at the problem together. And that certainly accelerates getting to a solution. But oftentimes, without seeing it from their perspective, you're impeded to even understanding it's it's so funny that you mention it because we, we've been talking a lot about that internally here in terms of how we position products like Termi, right, our chatbot solution. We're all in the same situation. Like from a Helm 360 perspective, we have people onboarding all across the world in different locations. Mm. And the the very fact that they don't have that person just kind of like walk over to or talk to in the corridor, that element is gone. And it's great to hear you're using channels like Slack, et cetera, that can kind of enable some of that stuff to be a little bit more effective. But it kind of leads me to something that I did want to ask you about, which is with some of these collaboration things, we've grown up with email. We've gone through a journey to manage our inboxes. Now we've introduced other things like Slack as another communication channel, Microsoft Teams. Some people I talk to, we feel like the problem has got a little bit worse in terms of managing communication in that you're now managing the stuff that's coming in email, which which continues to exist, right, and doesn't go away. And now you've got hundreds of channels and groups that you're being added to to collaborate with one another more efficiently. Based on what you've seen as well, it'd be interesting to get your take on this as to whether you see some of the collaboration that's happening through some of these platforms as really exacerbating the issue of being able to manage communication versus actually solving the problem and just interested to see how you manage that aspect of your day-to-day. Yeah, spot on. I struggle with exactly what you just described. I love all the, the different communication mechanisms that we have now, but sometimes when a week goes by and I've dealt with a hundred other things and I'm trying to come back and I, I know there was a nice little write-up, whether it was a spreadsheet, a document, a message in Slack, an email, I can't remember where it is and how to find it. Finding trusted information is so critical, more critical now than when we were more single channel through email. My boss hates email. He'd like to do everything through Slack, but then you get a proliferation of Slack channels whether they're ad hoc channels or purpose-built like topical channels, we're getting an influx of a lot of requests from some of our vendors that we work with to set up joint channels, which is awesome. It, it allows for cross-company collaboration, but we're sort of scratching our heads to say, hmm, you know, how do we control that? How do we know how long that channel should be set up for? You know, how do we make sure it doesn't have access or people aren't putting things in there that we don't necessarily want shared externally? So yeah, there's security issues and and all kinds of issues, but a lot of times I'm stuck at just finding information I need to get back to. I think it's going to be a challenge that will most likely get solved at some point, but it will probably be with the introduction of some something new, right? It's definitely some, one of the things that we see consistently happening across different industries. So I'm sure um, I'm sure everybody can feel the pain on that one. Just to kind of touch on that collaboration between you and external vendors or clients or whoever they may be. What kind of challenges do you see around metrics, right? Because one of the things that kind of strikes me is that when we're delivering a service via a channel like this, 
one of the things that goes away from the old mindset of, you know, I've got a ticketing system, for example, to go and respond to customer service requests that come in. And if you replace a large chunk of that through more open communication through channels like Microsoft Teams and Slack, do you lose some of that ability to be able to really track how successful you are? And in your experience of running these professional services groups, how important were the metrics to really drive success within those teams? And what kind of things were you tracking to enable you to be successful? I think depending on the size and sophistication of the organization or the business, there's maybe a, a different level of rigor around managing to the metrics. You know, IBM is run by finance. A lot of that taught me about operating at scale. I had worked for much smaller companies before going to IBM. So that was a very seminal experience in my career. Wow, just applying metrics and teaching people the importance of them and that we were gonna try and get to those and then fine tuning them over, over time. If I look at the company I'm part of now, it's a much smaller company and my instincts tell me that I wanna challenge myself and my team to be measured by certain metrics. We're probably not quite there yet to make everything quite so metrics driven. A lot of what we're doing is innovative. So it's harder to measure and put sort of a stopwatch and, and metrics on that when you're trying to build something brand new that might have huge labor savings down the line. But I think still being informed and having a sense of like what you might need to mature toward is important. I do kind of feel that when you're not measuring things, it's, it's easy to get sloppy. In some situations, maybe that's not a big problem, but any company that's trying to use services, you know, as a key part of their business, you have to measure it. You have to measure it, whether it's customer sat or billings, profitability, how do we price things? I mean, there's just so many decisions that if you're not making them based on data, boy, you're really probably throwing darts at the board in the dark. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very insightful, actually. And I think the takeaway is really... Timing is everything. Metrics are good and needed, but the timing that you implement them is, is very key so that you don't put a stop to innovation, right? Like I think the innovation piece is a very good point that we need to be thinking about, that we don't want to stop the pace of innovation by throwing metrics that don't make sense at it. But when you get to the point where you really need to get consistency in the delivery and you want to scale delivery and all of those fun things, that's when the metrics really kick in and you want to make sure that those things are, are being managed. And how you deliver those metrics too, so I've got some familiarity with Termi, both the bot that can give you ad hoc answers and, and the dashboarding. And I think that's perfect, right? Like what metrics are relevant to your business may be different and they may be different at different stages of your business, but having some kind of tool like that, that gives you dashboarding capabilities to know where you stand is pretty key. You know, maybe a bot that can serve as some sort of digital concierge, if you will, to try to help you keep track of all the disparate information that is coming at you from all these different channels these days. You know, I, I think, I, well, I don't think, I know you guys are onto something with, with that as a value proposition. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. To me, like metrics are really good, but we, we should not be pushing out metrics just for the sake of pushing out metrics. So they've got to drive something, right? Drive a decision or drive an action or whatever. And that's really what we've been trying to do from a termy perspective. Appreciate you um, pointing that out. It kind of brings us on nicely to one of the things I wanted to touch on with you is around the user experience, because obviously with user Zoom and the kind of work that you guys do to help customers with that whole user experience piece of it, Tell us a little bit about that and your view on how much user experience matters. Sure. I am a passionate believer that design matters. 
So it's it's actually kind of fun for my professional career to be aligned with with that personal philosophy. You know, whether it's the design of everyday objects, whether it's architecture or software design, design matters quite a bit. And you know, more and more of our world is gravitating toward digital assets, digital experiences. So it's not just software companies that we end up working with, but anybody that has any form of a, a digital asset. And UserZoom basically provides benchmarking of your design. So you know, I think a lot of companies struggle with being able to try and quantify, back to your comment about metrics, how do we know how good our, or not so good our design is? So being able to, to benchmark that being able to use well-established studies to be able to test different designs as you go through the evolutions of optimizing your product or your digital experience. And then the really unique thing about the user Zoom as a company is there's a third leg to the stool. There's the product, there's professional services. So we have researchers, people that are PhDs in design and design disciplines that work with our customers. That's pretty typical for an enterprise software company. With design, you actually need subjects, test subjects to test your designs against. And so that's the third thing that we provide to our customers because it's hard for any given company to have sort of a panel that maybe matches the exact demographics that they want for a particular study that they wanna run. So it's a unique business that we have and I think it's something that people are realizing more and more is not a nice to have, it's a have to have. As we know from using good software and bad software and designing our own over the years, right, Bim? You know, the customer's experience with the software is key. And a lot of times the underlying capabilities of the software just expressed, you know, through the user experience one way versus another, make it a completely different success or failure in the marketplace. You're totally right. The way I kind of look at it is that if you need to spend time building lots and lots of training around a product, you've probably built the product wrong in the first place. So I love the work that you guys are doing on this in this yeah. space. I think it's so necessary, especially with enterprise systems as well. Like there's so much uh, of that clunky system that's really feature rich, can do so many things, but fundamentally, like nobody wants to use it and it's too difficult to use or really hard to right. to kind of scale, scale out a workforce that can use that software as well. Yeah, well, we've all suffered through mandatory to use bad software. So yeah, if we can improve that a little bit at a time, the world will be a better place. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So thank you so much, Marty. I just have a couple more wrap-up questions now. It's nothing too taxing. So my first one is, if you could borrow Doctor Who's time machine and you were able to go back to Marty when you were 18 years old and give 18-year-old Marty career, career advice, and this is starting to sound like a Back to the Future reference, but it's not. <laughs> I, would, I would tell myself to slow down and be more thoughtful about some of the decisions that you make. I'm not somebody that has a lot of regrets, but more and more, probably as I get older in various forms, whether it's at work or in some of the volunteering stuff that I'm doing, I just find myself thinking, like, I wish I could help that person understand that if they just slowed down, things would work out better or they, or they might take a different approach. One of those hard things, I guess, to tell somebody younger, but one, one of the things that I'd love to go back and tell myself. Excellent. So, and just finally, so I have two, two, two parts to this question. Question number one, favorite place um, that you visited. Okay. And the second part is if I asked you any country, would you be able to recommend 
the best coffee shop in that country. For the listeners, just to put some context here, Marty is a big coffee drinker, right? How many coffees have you had today? Let's give them some context. Okay, okay. I can answer both those questions. This is not pandering to the home team, but the, the country I've spent the most time throughout my life has been the UK. Don't know why, but, but I had an affinity for it. From college on, I did a junior year abroad over in the UK at Oxford and have visited personally and professionally since then. So maybe it's because I'm not big on foreign languages other than the Latin and the Greek, which I've also forgotten. I think you guys have a, a wonderful country and there's lots of quaint and interesting things to do and an amazing variety packed into such a small size. Thank you. The Queen will be very, very pleased to hear that, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's, sincere, it's sincerely meant. There's other places that I like, but I, I like the UK quite a bit. So Taylor Street Baristas in London. It's a place that Patrick Hurley, our good friend Patrick, introduced me to at some point. This was, I think, when they had just one shop and we were out visiting a client and it was a little hole in the wall place. And then I pointed out to Patrick that they opened another shop right near our Canary Wharf office when TR moved the office over there. It was about three blocks away. He had no idea it was there. So I think that was more about Patrick's lack of concern for, for quality coffee or lack of dependence <laughs> on quality coffee. But we enjoyed many coffees there, you know, in the, in the intervening years. And Nav, I still do OU brownies from Taylor Street if I make it back there anytime soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. So that brings us to the end. So I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you very much, Marty. It's been very insightful, really great to kind of hear about some of the journey that you've been on the experience, loved hearing about your take on uh, user experience and how much of an impact that has and really grateful for your time today. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Bim. It's great to see you again and I miss you. I miss working with you, for you. I have high, high expectations of, of Helm with your leadership. Thank you, I appreciate that. Thank you again for tuning into the show today. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, it would really help us out if you subscribed on Apple, Google, or Spotify. And if you would tell one friend about the show, both would be really appreciated as well. Thank you for listening today and see you next time on The Legal Helm. Mm-hmm.